You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Mort Siebert, and I, Niels Kasselblasen, where we do our best to bring you into the world of rules-based investing by sharing our observations and hard-learned lessons over the last few decades, hoping that you can avoid making some of the mistakes that we did. As usual, let me start by saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. How are you doing? Yes, very nice to be in Florida. I guess the rest, a lot of the rest of the country is getting a lot of cold weather, so nice to be here. Good morning. Yeah, absolutely. Great, and good morning to you both. I'd like to be where you guys are right now in sunny Florida. Bit of a gray weather here, but well, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. So I guess, uh, you know, uh, uh, another good week, we can certainly say, for, for equities, making new all-time highs, uh, as, as you, Jerry, just told us, uh, breezing through 28,000 on the Dow. Um, but I guess this week may be a little bit different from the last few weeks. Uh, it was supported also by some uh, kind of lift in fixed income markets again. Um, and also I noticed that the VIX uh, finished at very low uh, level. I think the lowest closed in 2019. So of course, if we if we look at that, it suggests that everything is fine, calm, tranquility in the financial markets. Um, not so sure when I look at the headlines coming out of Hong Kong at the moment. Uh, also notice that the uh, uh, unrest there is, is taking a toll on their GDP down by 3% year over year. And uh, I think their retail sales were down 18% from a year ago. So uh, not not quite uh, calm in that part of the world. Um and, you know, we say that markets and stocks are making new all-time highs, but I did notice that there are a few stocks that are certainly not making new all-time highs, and that's a lot of the latest IPOs uh, like Uber, Lyft, and and Work. So definitely some diversification. I think they're making new all-time lows at the moment. I'm sure Jerry would maybe know that better than I do, but just some headlines that I picked up. And the final one, before we dive into your uh, week, Moritz, was just that I saw the JP Morgan came out with an article on Bloomberg talking about that the so-called 60-40 portfolio, you know, it's been obviously doing incredibly well this year, uh, both on the stock side and on the fixed income side and, you know, riding this wave of central bank, uh, you know, uh, fuel. Um, but, um, you know, there are concerns on their side, at least, that these valuations we see in stocks and obviously the very low interest rate levels we see uh, in many places of the world, certainly in in Europe and Japan with negative rates that, you know, the, the hunt in order to, you know, uh, have some expectation of, of reasonable returns in the next decade or two, you kind of need to start looking for other types of um, investments, you know, alternative investments. I'm sure they're not referring directly to what we do, but they are talking about that you need to um, you need to start broadening out uh, in terms of your portfolio. Something, of course, that I agree with. Um, not so sure I agree with um, that you should just buy private equity, uh, i.e., buying stocks in a different way. But you some real real um, diversification that we know trend followers can offer. Um, perhaps uh, would be a good idea. Anyways, uh, Moritz, as usual, um, I'm excited to hear how your week turned out. 
I'm excited to report it, as I always am, okay. when the uh, performance has been good. Now, um, oh, nice. think up 2.5%, something like that. You know, bond markets have turned around a bit, uh, not at the beginning of the week, but um, definitely on Thursday, and I think to a certain extent also yesterday, so that helped me and produced gains. The dollar got a bit stronger as well, so I'm still along the dollar, not as much as I used to be, but still long. And equities, you know, I uh, increased the long positions in equities, and uh, those markets are just on a on a roller coaster ride up. Uh, well, actually, not a roller coaster ride, just up. There's there's no roller coasting there. It's pretty much straight. So that has worked too. Um, and I didn't really see a lot of stuff from like the commodities, energies, like WTI, kind of like set there. Uh, not much movement there, but so again, bond and equity driven. To a certain extent of X, two and a half percent up, not complaining. Not complaining, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we saw kind of similar um, similar events uh, during the week. Um, so, so, so you know, solid return return drivers like you, like yourself. I mean, certainly um, equities did really well. I think, with the exception of the FTSE on our side uh, and the Hang Seng, those were. Losing markets for the week. Um, currency is pretty quiet, maybe a little bit to the downside overall uh, when I look at the attributions. Um, and fixed income, yeah, a little bit of a uh, you know a lift on that side um, on on most markets, but the Bund certainly in the driver's seat uh, on that side. Um, as you said, energy pretty quiet, but net gas did quite well uh, for us. So um, so not. Not not uh, you know not a non-event I would say, and then um, as I'm just getting my coffee here, uh, coffee did pretty well for us this week, um, and uh, but the big winner was actually cocoa uh, on our side. So um, we we like 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 the two of you, we like the diversification. So even the smaller markets can have a meaningful impact on performance. So um, yeah, so that's really how it played out on on our side. Um, but what about you, Jerry? What did you see? Yes, similar stuff, except I think uh, maybe maybe I'm more heavy in the metals and silver, gold, and platinum. Not a good time for them this month. And uh, I like the cocoa as well, but uh, lead. As soon as I bought lead and bean oil, they went lower, so kind of messed up there. So, you know, mixed bag for me, probably my biggest uh, bond long was the Italian and probably that's probably the weakest bond. So a lot of uh, diversification amongst us three trend following firms. So yeah, that's quite interesting. Yeah. But uh, also I'd like to just comment on what you're saying about the 6040. And I think that in all honesty, I think we were always sort of prepared to do better than 6040 and offer that um, increased diversification and risk control with uh, our currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds, long and short. But, you know, hopefully the performance of will, you know, continue to be uh, next year and the year after it be like it was this year. And so we can kind of entice people to move on over and have something to look forward to with uh, all of the different markets we trade. Another thing you mentioned that people talk a lot about is anticipating lower returns in the future. And with CTAs and trend following and all the markets we trade, we really don't have that issue because we can be long, we can be short, and valuation doesn't really play a role in our anticipated returns in the future like it would if you came in with the mindset of long stocks uh, or 
long bonds in a period where the rates are sort of negative. So we got them coming and going. We just have to sort of show the better performance like we had this year. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a couple of interesting points before we jump to um, to the, the tweets of the week. Um, first of all, I would say that, um, I mean, 2019, uh, fingers crossed um, and touch on wood, is going to be one of those years where there really wasn't a crisis and bonds have done well, equities have done well, CTAs have done well. So like 2000 and I think uh, 14-ish um, and um, maybe even 17, I think where generally speaking, major asset classes did well, but actually CTAs also did okay. So again, just going away from this, um, you know, we have a mandate to make money when there's a crisis. We can only make money when there's a crisis. I mean, hopefully this year we'll just remind people that that's not the case. Um, what I do sense also when talking to our peers in the industry is that there is, um, I think there's a little bit of a shift. Uh, I think we, we, we've all tried to some extent um, to offer trend following as a, as a one single product, come and buy it. But there is, I think, a bit of a shift um, in trying to just package it um, with one of these um, traditional asset classes and in particular with equities so that investors really only see one ticker symbol um, but it will consist of long only equity as a portion of it and then you know your trend following strategy on top now you could do of course offer like uh, like you might do uh, Jerry and just say no this is stocks but it's trend following on all stocks but in this case what I've seen at least for now is more people saying, okay, you, we're going to give you some long only equity exposure. And at the same time, you're going to get this on top. Uh, let's not talk about too much about each individual component. But what you see in terms of the return stream is that it's obviously a lot more smooth. And it's a pretty exciting um, performance that, that that combination has delivered. So instead of trying to sell it individually, it's just being packaged differently. Now, there's nothing new to it as such. I think actually, even back in the 90s, Jerry, we were talking about doing exactly that with Portable Alpha and putting putting um, uh, uh, one of the Chesapeake programs on top of a long-only um, S&P uh, portfolio. So there's absolutely nothing new in it. It's just interesting to me to see that the people are, because we have been struggling maybe as an industry to to really convince people and to embrace the pure trend um, that this, this this packaging comes back. And if it means more people get exposure to trend, fantastic. Um, but that's just something I've noticed in the last few weeks talking to some of our of our nice colleagues. Exactly. I think Milburn and even uh, Abby have uh, had those products and they've been, I know Milburn's been incredibly successful. Yeah. Uh, so whatever it takes to give people as much diversified trend as they can handle and package it, uh, certainly probably a good idea. I do think it's that's what's happened in the past. And so the future, well, uh, I'll put my money on diversified trend following right. with single stocks or whatever, but uh, still, that's I think that'll be the best idea going forward. But certainly, um, and I think these funds, for some uh, Milburn's very large, and um, I think it's when stocks sell off, they see redemptions. So yeah. Yeah. people love the increased returns and not thinking so much about what's really inside of it all the time. 
Is that something uh, you come across, uh, Mort? Is that something you're contemplating with uh, your new initiatives or anything like that? Mm, I'm not contemplating that, and I'm telling you why it is. I mean, I'm not not against the fact to give ex, you know to give people exposure to trend following. That's a great thing, as as you've just said. I have the feeling that you know those type of topics they come up every time equities make new highs and just you know they're on the run and everybody wants to you know because they are benchmarked against the S&P 500 it's difficult to you know keep the pace but my real point is if i'm trading equities inside a trend following portfolio long and short in a diversified way different time frames then i kind of like have a problem with putting a long only buy and hold equity allocation right next to it because what what is it then i mean what what am i doing do i want to am i a trend following trader or am I a long only trader i mean if i believe that trend following long and short is a better approach to trading then i should apply to all of my equity risk and not only a part of it and keep another part of it long only but if i can challenge you on that yep. more it's, it's not that i disagree it's just that sometimes it doesn't really matter what we think and what we feel oh, yeah. and the, what the client you know, wants it it's the fact yeah. that it, if the client wants the other product then you know Give it to yeah. them. If it means that actually they get a better product than a long only, I, I'm, I'm kind of all for mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, sometimes packaging, mm -hmm. and we know perception is real. I mean, let's not forget that the people. No fair point. If yeah. they see it as a enhanced uh, equity allocation, right? Then, then great. Then you know, a, yeah, a, yeah. a small bit of trend following helps them, right? True. And it's 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 totally just marketing yeah. and packaging, so right? And giving them uh, helping, and maybe you could say that it. I've heard this from advisors like, uh, "You tell me how much trend following to have, and you put it into a package for me." And this is sort of doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. So maybe it's fifty-fifty. I think in these popular products, but I think they have one Achilles heel. Uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on this. And I've made this to my some of my friends who. Uh, I say to them, no, don't do this. Just trade more stocks and trade long and short uh, single names. You know, make it an enhanced product that's more correlated to the S and P. Let's say on the upside, but it's got the great risk control and uh, up the trend following strategy. So, and then uh, this is what I think is the major problem uh, from a business. If you want to get real world, if you want to get uh, not to do what's perfect in your mind as far as just pure trading and research and backtesting, then how about this one? Which is, if you can buy the S&P for free, how can you package the S&P and put your, top, your fees on top of that? So, I think a lot of these... Uh, funds are going to be mutual funds going to charge 100 to 150 basis points so my point was oh that's fine just cut your fees in half because half of what you're giving people is free yeah. from other people yeah. oh no we can't <laughs> do that that destroys the whole business model <laughs> so eventually i think it's always good and this is the history of business is uh if clients can't see it then some a nasty entrepreneur will come along and say oh i've got the same product here but it's half the fees because on the other half of the AUM, all I'm doing is rolling the S&P. I'm not going to charge you for that. You're, you're paying five bips to Vanguard for it. I'll give it to you for free. So I think uh, that's a little wrinkle in the business model. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point, and it kind of also ties into this discussion that um, that that you could have with uh, you know uh, risk-free interest income in our funds. You know, should we actually get performance fee on that? And I think certainly in, in our case, I think where we can, where you're allowed to kind of distinguish between the income and not charge fees, we would not charge a fee on. Uh, on on risk free interest income, and if you could do it, I'm not sure you can, but I think it's you're right. I mean, I think it's fair if you're offering a product where 50% of it um, is just being long S and P. You shouldn't you shouldn't have a performance fee on that. You should be paid on on the on on what you bring to the table in terms of your trading. But and 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 I guess none of us uh, are, knows the the rules and the regs in in, in that great detail. But there probably could be some problems in doing so. Um, when when you package it as a fund, but I think in general you should always treat you know clients as fair as possible. I think you get furthest in business by by doing so. That's for sure. And don't insult your clients. Yeah, I think it's insulting to create something like that, and because eventually they'll wise up. Say, sure. Why did you do that for all those years? That yeah. I thought you were. I thought you would not do that. I've actually had clients tell me that before. Yeah, Jerry, why did you do that? And, oh, you're like, oh my god, yeah. So you got to be careful when you're dealing with people. They'll figure it out eventually. Absolutely. All right. Well, that was a, a good segment or segue, I guess, into uh, this week's um, tweets. I'll be interested to know, first off, if, uh, like the Dow Jones, we made a new all-time high in, in one of the tweets or whether we're still close to the 1,000-like the mark. How was, how was the week on that? Uh, pretty good question. Uh, but no, I think we're at the 905-ish. Okay. Uh, likes was going to be hard to break. But a lot of popular tweets this week, and I'm still living off of the Rintec article and Larry Height. So uh, when my two favorite subjects go away, I think we'll be back down to the 50s and 60s. Uh, but uh, almost 100 likes on uh, this one this week uh, from... I say from the group that creates the best models, Rentech, the quote goes, LT, LTCM's basic era was believing its models were truth. We never believed our models reflected reality, just some aspects of reality. So I like that. I'd like to get your thoughts on that one. What do you think that even means? I think from my point of view is that LTCM, I think, believes so much that their models would be right that they added this incredible amount of leverage and they did it in in markets that were not very liquid. Danish mortgage-backed bonds, I mean, I traded those bonds. I know they're not liquid to the extent that they needed liquidity, right? Russian something as well. There was some Russian stuff in it as well. And I think that's what, at least that's my takeaway, that you should not get so confident that you think you can't be wrong. And I've got a quote uh, later, it might actually be one of the quotes you got as well, but I'll 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 end with that when we come to an end of it. But but again, you need to design your systems to be wrong. You need to design your systems to know that you're going to fail, but also you, you need to design them so that you will survive when you fail. Oh, I say fail, but when you when you get into a, a, a you know a bad losing streak, right? That that's the point. And if you don't do that and you rely, and I think, again, this is what's really dangerous. We talked about this a few weeks ago, and one of our listeners very kindly kind of, um, I think actually it was one of my colleagues that, that, that asked me that, and I can't remember exactly where the wording came from. But I think I mentioned this 
difference between what we do and what a lot of these more convergent strategies that look smooth do, and that is they warehouse risk, and instead we recognize and realize risk on a daily basis. And I think that's exactly what happened with LTCM. It looked great, but inside their strategy, they were warehousing a lot of risk. So when it started going wrong, and then add to that, you know, 100x times leverage uh, or whatever they had, um, you get into serious trouble. And I think what Renaissance Technologies are doing is saying, well, we, we know that these models won't last forever, so we can't rely on them to the same degree. Uh, we need and, and risk management obviously uh, plays a, a key role in that. And I'm sure, I don't know how they manage their risk, but, um, but in the book they talk about, certainly in the early days, that there were, um, even though they were far away, but there certainly were some cutoff levels in terms of how much pain they could take before they would you know, reduce risk and all of that stuff. But, I mean, you should never rely blindly on something. And I think... Uh, I think I tweeted something this week along the lines that when you design your models, you have to take bold risk, but you have to hedge with common sense. I think common sense should always be part of your design. Exactly. That is, so to me, I think there's models and models, right? Um, you can have a model that you need to calibrate to market data and it spits out a price, black shoals, you know, some sort of, you know, option pricing model, complex derivative pricing models and if you take a lot of risk because your model tells you that the price is x but the market displays a price of y and you think y is wrong and your model x price is right then that is a different business in my opinion to the one that we're in where we are not doing that exercise we're designing a system based on historical statistics and we're following it we're not we're not saying the market price is wrong. We're taking the market price as the only input and saying it's correct. And we're, you know, placing a bet based on how that price has moved in the past. This is a different type of risk um, or model risk, system risk, if you will, than the one that LTCM had on, where they had people like Myron Scholes and all those guys uh, calibrating models to the market using lots of leverage, right? And betting their, their modeling of the world is correct but they were t they were taught a story by the market that their models were incorrect this is not a business that we're luckily in we don't need to calibrate any black shoals or whatever type of derivatives model to our systematic trend following strategies uh it's just not required but i cannot say what rentech's doing you know whether they are using those type of models to come up with a theoretical price for a position and then they act based on that or whether they are more like us where they um, you know, observe data such as prices or volume or whatever it is, and and without modeling or calibrating it to to anything, they'll just you know put up a position and and see where that takes them. So I don't. None of us knows that. Um, but I I like that. Like what I do not. Models are never reality. This is why it's a model, right? I mean, otherwise it would be reality. Um, so every time you model anything, really, like you said, Niels, you have to take it with some real world judgment and at least understand that that what you're looking at is not reality, that there, there will be a certain element of error in that model, whether you like it or not. And you have to be, you have to know that you have to be aware of it. And from a risk management point of view, therefore you cannot put, you know, infinitive risk on that because it, you know, maybe the end of your business.
Yeah, that's that's good. I think uh, the leverage is definitely a key uh, that can get you in trouble, not limiting your losses. Smallish losses is, can get you in trouble. I think the strategy that we have just when the market goes against us, it's naturally, a, it's becoming a worse and worse trade. And so we're going to get out of that trade. And I think with the opposite strategy, it sort of becomes a better and better trade. So it's a little confusing as to, you know, we have said so many times, you know, follow your system. And now we're saying, well, but uh, not all the time. And I think that's what the, I think that's what Rintech is sort of saying. Um, even if they do sort of a convergent strategy at some point in time, you need to reduce positions, cut back and not uh, have this incredible faith in something that's just something you made and it may not always work. And in fact, we didn't get to the tweets last week, but I tweeted this conversation that um, is in the book that Simon's had and people were complaining about him overriding and saying, no, we're going to trade smaller. We're going to get out of positions that this ultimate risk control, we're losing money. And they're like, no, no, no. The, we believe in the system. Either you believe in it or you don't believe in it. And he was like, no, we're going to get out. We're going to trade small. And they did. And then at the end, they survived because that's our ultimate goal. Many tweets and comments on this show about staying in the game. And then people said, well, to Simons, they said, well, look how much money we left on the table in the end. And he was like, yeah, but if, I would do it again. And I think this is uh, what goes in with the system, any type of system. And so we, we sort of call it system and they kind of call it models. There's probably something there. But any system or model that you have, any rules that you follow, it's okay to override them uh, at some point to survive. And I think this is coming from the people who made the best models. And uh, this was my comment. If you can't take it from them, that they're willing to sort of say, no, probably going to cut back at the exact wrong time. I know that's been my history, just cut back, reduce risk, and all of a sudden everything gets better. But you only have to be wrong once. Yeah, yeah. One one could be enough. Being wrong once could be enough. And this is a tremendous uh, limitation. I know this doesn't sit well with everyone, but I know this is a tr it's just a, one small example of a tr the tremendous limitation for backtesting. It's never happened in the backtest. I mean, that's just the worst thing anybody can say. And, I, and we've all heard people over the years, CTAs over the years say, well, I know if my worst drawdown is exceeded, the system's no good. I'll shut it all down. I mean, you know, how about the one before that, you know? So it's, it's just really the limitations of taking these uh, models and looking at the history and putting too much faith in what you've seen in the past and what you're going to see in the future. I think uh, coming from Renaissance, that's a really good lesson because we don't, I don't have the best models, so I'm definitely going to be very concerned with my overall risk when I'm losing money. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, I think that's kind of the ongoing um, common sense approach, but I also think that common sense in just the way you design your system to begin with, right? I mean, frankly speaking, and, and of course, you know, I don't mean to criticize people, but but frankly speaking, having, you know, running a, a, a you know, a portfolio with 100x leverage trading, I mean, 
I know some of these people had won Nobel Nobel prizes, but but still, you you should know that there are certain markets, as I said, like Danish like Danish mortgage-backed bonds and and Russian whatever debt it was they were trading. You would think that they know, but maybe this is the maybe. Let me just change track a little bit. Maybe this is the difference a little bit. Even though you should say in house, they should certainly have the capability. But there's a difference coming to the markets with pure a purely theoretical background, right? Because they obviously can crunch the numbers and build models and all of that. But if you don't have the feel of the market, if you don't really understand, can this strategy be traded at all times? That's also a risk uh, that you need to take into account. And I personally, I think that that's what LTCM completely missed. Um, their models may have been sound, but the markets they were, uh, you know, uh, uh, deploying them on with that amount of leverage, that that was not a good cocktail. It's interesting you say that because, um, well, first off, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of value in having experience in the markets, and we've mentioned that before, right? Because there's so much happening, so many unexpected things happening, which over a you know career in the markets, I think they add up and they're valuable. But then, on the other hand, you have firms like Rentec, where they're very explicitly saying, if you are from Wall Street, if you have worked as a trader in a bank, we're not going to hire you. We're going to hire a theoretical physicist from a faculty out of university, or we're going to hire a speech recognition expert who previously used to work, you know, at any place, but definitely not on Wall Street. So they hire people who have absolutely no connection with the markets. I don't want to say absolutely, but you know, much less than a trader would have, and no experience trading. And they make it a prerequisite uh, for anyone to join Rentec. So it's the opposite of that, right? They they kind of like want the pure minds, the you know unaffected brains, if you, if you will. So the way so the way we deal with that more it's on our side just to give you a kind of a real life example is that we do have the professors the PhDs and all of that and they're the ones focusing on coming up with the models but before we deploy any model in any client portfolio even before we get to the point where we would trade it with our own money which we do first we do a paper trading period where we do operational reviews and where our traders will be reviewing every single trade being created by the model in order to ensure that actually this can be traded and be traded at the size we need to trade, right? So I'm sure Rentec must be doing something similar, but I think it's important just to highlight that, you know, there are many risks within, you know, we talk a lot about the model risk, right? But there's also the implementation risk or whatever we call it. That's right. So, yeah. Look what a little tweet can do, Jerry, in terms of getting us going on a Saturday morning. There's a lot of wisdom in these things uh, and a lot of fun to talk about. Um, so we'll rotate here, go back. We It's going to be dominated by Rintech and Larry. And I want to get to the Wayne, one of my favorite Wayne tweets of last week. So, um, But I got this from Larry Height. Um, the success I've had arrived because I always expected to fail. Solution? I engineered my actions so that a failure could not kill me. This is mission critical, important. I won because I always expected to lose. And I think that's the way trend following systems are sort of built with the longs and the shorts and the currencies. 
and the commodities added to the stocks and bonds, small losses and going with the trend and paying attention to price only. And critically important is that a lot of people write and talk about investing in terms of long stocks and long bonds and make the point that one can't expect to make reasonable sums investing if they don't take reasonable risk. And this is really not, you know, we, we sort of don't have to worry too much about value and taking lots of risk because we have a systematic approach where all the trades make the same amount of money so, and have the same expectation. So we, we take a moderate amount of risk and we can always be expected to do pretty well. Yeah, I mean, this is beautiful because, I mean, that is exactly the quote I was referring to before, saying I had a quote from Larry that I wanted to share at the end of it, so I don't have to do that now, because that, I think, encapsulates so many things in terms of what we do. And I think a lot of people um, may not realize that uh, trend following, to a large extent, is a risk-first strategy, meaning we focus on the risk. That's what we think have a decent chance of controlling. We have no chance of controlling the return and we don't really worry about too much in terms of what return are we going to get because the markets will give us what they're going to give us. And so, yeah, no, I think that that's, I, I, I love that quote. All of those from Larry are great. I mean, one of the things, we're not stubborn with our trades and this is so important, right? We're not continuing to sail in stormy weather, we, we, you know, we cannot control the wind, we can't adjust the sail, we let the sail down if it becomes too windy, too risky, because we don't want to, you know, capsize, we don't want to get killed by, by those markets. And just Larry has this great way of putting all of that wisdom in, in such a concentrated two sentences, where it's only, you know, it would take me so much more time to, to spell the same thing out. And he has a real skill and a talent to put it into two sentences, and it's all there. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of fun. I think uh, Larry and Simons are two very different people, but they have a lot of wisdom. And even Simons and Rintek being so different uh, than trend following, it's a lot of the same thoughts and components to how you approach the markets. I haven't read the book, but I feel like I'm pretty much done with it because I've read so many articles. And uh, the this is from the New York Times, How to Beat the Market. And this is a quote from Simons. Human behavior will never be completely efficient. Anomalies exist because humans have always acted emotionally. Those inefficiencies are what emotionless computers take advantage of. So I think that really sums up a big part of what we do as well, emotionless. Because, you know, uh, the cocoa was a good move this week, but I actually sold my cocoa like a few weeks ago or a month, a few months ago at the very low, you know, probably the low day. That's not fun. You know, I've already complained about buying bean oil and lead at the highs, and those turned into immediate losses. So the computer is emotionless. It doesn't really care. It's happened many, many times, and uh, cocoa... It's a great market because it's not like any other markets. So the computer buys it again. It has no emotion. So that's a, just a small part of doing what we do. And you know what, Jerry? I think, I mean, I think that is really important because when we, and certainly those clients that we share our positions with on a whatever frequency basis uh, we do, when they look at our positions, they might say, oh, now they're getting really long equities at the moment. So it'll feel uncomfortable, right? 
um, if they have an opinion about it, certainly if they have an opinion that equities may, you know, be due for a correction, it's going to feel really uncomfortable. But then at the same time, if people look at your track record or if you do a backtest, you don't you don't see how many times we as an industry or as a trader, we've had these high conviction positions. And we just say, okay, well, the returns look great. I mean, that's fine. We like that and, and, and we'll, we'll take it, right? But as soon as you start to drill down and you see, you, get, you see more and more detail, it feels more and more uncomfortable. And that's why the emotionless computers are so important. And in fact, so I had a, a, another conversation just in terms about, you know, how much information is really good for investors, right? Some investors want complete transparency, everything. But the question is, is it really good for them? Does it do anything for them? You know, instead, if you were just sending like a quarterly letter by post saying, okay, this quarter was so-and-so, wouldn't that be an easier investment for them to hold if, if they got, you know, a much less frequent updates? I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there because I think it's, it's a challenge for us seeing it internally, but that challenge is times five or ten when a client from the outside sees into our portfolios because they will have an opinion about what our positions are. Even though they want our return stream, they're still going to think, well, hmm, are they really right in buying more bonds at this level and or selling cocoa that day or whatever it might be? I mean, great. I mean, the emotionless computers are important. I, I agree. Just, just imagine if you send out a letter to a client only every five years. So I've, I've never been down on a rolling five-year period, right? So every five-year letter I would send to a client would be, congratulations, we've made a new high, you've made money, right? So every single one of those letters would be a positive one. This would be just fantastic, right? They would never complain. So I, I agree. I mean, but it's also true for us, right? The more we remove ourselves from the markets, if all the tickers, I read it on Twitter this week, didn't have names, they only had like numbers and you didn't even know what you were looking at. You completely remove yourself from the news and from the noise and from the president and from bar and this and that and the other thing. And you don't look at the markets every day, you look at them as infrequently as you possibly can and just follow the system, easier ride, for sure. Yeah, and, and let's tie some of our old comments together. So we kind of know that um, we've seen studies that show that you should not chase performance. Firing your current manager to replace him with someone else doesn't really work. And yet the most sophisticated investors do that. And the alternative is to understand the process, understand what you're getting yourself into and embrace it and like it. And then, of course, we also know through other studies that the most successful managers over a 20-year period have the greatest term uh, have the greatest periods of underperformance. <laughs> so it's you know you've got to hang in there and not kind of uh, look at this stuff too much. And then we also have seen a study from I guess Schwab or Fidelity saying clients who looked at their accounts the least frequently made the most amount of money. So there's no evidence out there that what you should be doing very much criticizing or evaluating your manager. I think it would be a good idea for CTAs in general to keep their positions secret. Don't let people see the positions, maybe the top five shorts, top five, five longs and shorts. But uh, I think that the cat's out of the bag, but uh, it's probably a good idea to put it back, put the cat back in the bag because um, 
And then pretend that you have something that is worthwhile that you would want people to see. I mean, that's a unique concept. It, it, well, true. But I mean, on the other hand, you could say that there's a lot of evidence that the most secret funds are the most, uh, I mean, are the ones that everybody wants to buy, you know. Another marketing thing. We, we're right. just playing uh, trend following, but we pretend that it's a lot more than that. And we don't show people our positions. I mean, yeah, I mean, giving people, I think the managed accounts, I see articles recently that separately managed accounts are popular with hedge fund investors. And that's how I got started. I think it was a major problem and an error to have so many managed accounts. So I think I'm against managed accounts and uh, lock it up in your fund. There's so many different reasons to do that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Any more tweets? We should uh, get into the Wayne one for sure before we head over to uh, questions. We got a few questions this week. Yeah, let's do uh, three more, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Okay, so this one, the Rintech team views their narratives that most investors latch onto to explain price moves as quaint, even dangerous, because they breed misplaced confidence that an investment can be adequately understood and its future divined. A Rintech employee once said if it was up to him, stocks would have numbers attached to them, not names. So investors would be less likely to, to succumb to a story. Ah, I love those. They got so much love this week. And uh, probably the first one is my favorite of all time. Knowing more in your head is something you should not desire. Mm -hmm. Follow those prices. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of something I read in a book called The Behavioral Investor by Daniel Crosby, uh, who uh, were on the podcast a, a month or so ago, or maybe more. But um, in his book, he talks about that as soon as you buy a stock, so, well, let me explain. So if you don't own Apple and you just see lots of news about Apple, you kind of, okay, you, you don't care too much about it. And, 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 and of course, deep down, you don't know what goes on inside Apple and with their finances and all of that and sales and so on and so forth. But as soon as you buy it and it's in your portfolio, you have an opinion about it. And so something changes when we know what we own. And I think also he writes in the book about actually what we should do is we should buy things we don't know about. I mean, and, and this is, and I think maybe this also is, is in the Rentech book, but the whole point about why, do we really need to know why a market is going up? A lot of people want to know why, and they go on TV and they talk about why Amazon is going to go to 3,000 or whatever it might be. But, of course, in our case, we we don't worry about the why. I don't exactly. want to say we don't care about, because care is not, but we don't worry about the why. We just worry about being in that trend. And I would argue that nobody, not a single person on that planet, knows 100% the answer to the why. There is like in those markets, there is no 100% correct answer as to, you know, why a stock should be going up or trading at that price. It's, it's impossible to know that. So the best thing is to step away from it. Point in case, I think, was it this week or the, no, probably the week before, Tesla made this huge pop up. You know, they've been losing less money or whatever it was. Something triggered it and they had a massive breakout and it started trading at 320. And then you have, you know, people here 
in uh, Germany car country, right? Going like, oh no, Tesla, that's a bad car to begin with. And, you know, we're going to do it so much better and the quality of the chassis isn't good and this and that and the other thing, right? So it's definitely a sell at 320, right? Because at 320, it's like 1.5x times the market cap of Daimler and Volkswagen, all of those, right? It can't be more than that. So I'm definitely selling the heck out of it at 320. I'm selling the calls, I'm shorting the stock and everything and pop, it's at 350. And those guys are crying. And it's like, you know, all the time, just don't get too carried away with a name or a story or, you know, thinking that you know that a company must be losing money and that it won't be surviving. It, the matter of fact is you just do not know. Just don't know. So, so if it has a major breakout, the last thing I want to do is short the thing. You know, maybe you want to sit there and not trade it, uh, but... If that's not what you're doing, then you want to be long that stock and see where it takes where it takes you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was short Tesla, and then had to reverse, get out, go long. Loved every minute of it. I owned a Tesla, and uh, so I was happy to buy that stock. But uh, so much fun. And then I guess uh, Elon Musk was calling out uh, Einhorn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. short on the short side. And it's kind of like. I don't follow Einhorn or Trump on Twitter, but uh, it's kind of funny when you read about it because they're calling out people all the time. And but, do you want to get to the Wayne? This is one of my favorite uh, Wayne tweets, and I, you know, I have a lot of strong opinions that I voice on the podcast and stuff. And uh, most of the time, I'm I don't get a lot of positive feedback from people. Oh yeah, now I get it. Now I agree with you 100%, Jerry. Now that. It's like never happens, but so this is just another way of saying something I've said many times, and I expect nothing from this one as well. But I really love this. Maybe I've twisted it to mean what I want it to mean. It's always possible. Uh, so Wayne says this: the seductive genius of the concept of probability is the idea that we get to put boundaries around our future, as if the mere act of taking measurements provides us with some semblance of certainty in the face of the real uncertainty that awaits us. Measurements are not walls. And so what I think I like about that is that uh, he's pretty much trashing backtest. You know, he's just sort of saying, all you did was measure. This was not truth, the gospel. Uh, you have no reason to think that this has anything to do with the future. The future will be much different. Maybe your expectation on your trades will be similar, your win percentage, Take away as little as you possibly can from this back test. Certainly, the the hypothetical equity curve NAV is has, and so just because we measured something in the past has nothing to do with the future. And I just thought, yes, exactly. Uh, it's a sad thing to say, but uh, I pretty much agree with all of that. But if we took nothing away from that back test, zero, right? Then we wouldn't be trading the way that we do trade. And we would be discretionary traders all the way through, right? I, I like the idea that, well, don't, you know, overinterpret the results that you see in the historical backtest. I mean, I don't do that. The future may look very different. And, you know, it usually does. Yet at the same time, I think that what we have observed in the past 
at least I use this as an anchor, that there's something there, that humans behave in a certain way, that markets trade in a certain way, that if I can follow that system and the pattern in whatever shape or form it plays out is still there going forward, I should be able to make some money of that in maybe a different you know shape or form. But I, I definitely want to take something away from it, some orientation, not nothing. Yeah, not nothing, but not, a, not too much. Not too much. And uh, right. But uh, when you asked that question, I thought about conversations we've had where we, I, I think it was on the podcast, but maybe not, where even though I've advocated um, and trade only long-term strategies, sometimes those we've, we've seen where those strategies have not outperformed shorter-term strategies. And I've wondered aloud with friends or with you guys that, uh, well, have I taken too much away? And does this mean that uh, just because medium term or shorter term strategies haven't done well, maybe they will. And maybe we should say, okay, it's still going to be following price, going with the trend, taking small losses, trailing stop, stop loss. But maybe uh, through very little evidence from the back test, I will trade medium term or shorter term because this could also turn out to be just fine ways to trade in the future. And minimally, I'm never going to say that those other strategies are not fine ways. I have no idea. So just theoretically in my head, I believe that not only would I discount what things I like in my back test, I won't really trash the things that I don't uh, use, uh, trash things from the back test that don't look that great and uh, that I don't really use in real time. I'm sort of shaking my head open for the futures and sort of saying, yeah, I have no doubt that medium to short term could have a stay in the sun. I mean, the, the way I think about the, 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 the quote and, and this discussion is that I think also it depends a little bit on what kind of strategy, what kind of um, you know model are you building uh, in terms of how much should you rely or how much should you take away from a backtest. I agree with Moritz that we definitely want to take something away from it. But what I like about what we do trend following as a concept is of course that we we de we design a strategy that is adaptive right so even if the the future doesn't look exactly like like the past it it's not that's not such a big issue because the the strategy in itself is adaptive if we were relying on fixed things to happen fixed patterns or whatever it might be yeah i would be a lot more cautious taking anything away from a practice but the fact that our models are adaptive and 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 we we certainly know that um say performance attributions over five-year periods will be very different sometimes it'll be fixed income sometimes it'll be equities or commodities whatever it might be but some of the key things that 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 I, I know you, Jerry, um, you know, repeats a lot is that there are certain things in the backtest that are, are critical, and that we can rely on things like trade stats. Right? We want to see certain things, um, you know, on a consistent basis, and and I think we should be able to rely on something. So I, you know, I don't think I, I don't agree completely with Wayne on this one, but I also keep in mind that he's not a fully systematic trader. I mean, he's rules-based but he's not a fully systematic trader um so maybe that's part of his personality also that he doesn't want to rely too you know too heavily on a back test because he has that discretionary overlay if i can put it like that i don't want to put words in his mouth but that's how i understand it though um but i think in our case if we build the models in a robust way i think we can 
take something away from 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 the Baptists. Well, uh, yeah, uh, and so this was a follow up to Wayne's tweet from someone else, which is pretty good. I see probabilities as a way to narrow potential outcomes enough to allow action to be taken. We need to act decisively in the face of uncertainty and then be prepared to reverse our decisions as the future unfolds. So I guess I'm just sort of generally not willing to dismiss or maybe even kind of embrace things that make me uncomfortable, but I sort of ignore them and say, okay, full speed ahead. I love the way we trade. I think it's the way to go. It's not perfect. And, uh, you know, certainly having a systematic approach where the average trade and the average win, the average loss, win-loss ratio, the the win percentage stays somewhat constant is, I think, a huge success. And uh, it's just going to look different going forward than it did in the past. And I think the key in what in what you said there, Jerry, is it's not perfect. And we know it's not perfect. And that's why we can somehow rely on it to to some extent. All right, guys, do you want to do a few questions? Or do you have more tweets, Jerry? Okay, all right, let's do a couple of questions here. So uh, this one is uh, kind of a follow-up from, from Carl. Carl had a question last week, and he's got a question here, follow-up. And it goes, are costs of getting in and out of a trade evaluated, uh, evaluated after a trade in respect to moving the stop to break even, question mark, or the cost a part of your initial risk? Which would you recommend? The cost of getting out of a trade. The way I, I, I rate the question is that whether the way we move our stop is impacted by the cost of getting in and out. My, my personal reaction is I don't think it is. Um, the cost is the cost. We know that there's a cost of doing the trades. The rules for moving our stops, if we use stops, is based on whatever model we run. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not necessarily taking into account that there might be a little bit of cost getting in and out but that's just how i understand the question okay um no i i uh well do you keep it the question is do you keep it separate meaning do you just do them you 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 create the model and it has the rules or do you within your model when you set your stop take any consideration to cost no i mean setting the no i i, I don't do that i mean Things like you know setting stops, changing stops over time—that that's not a cost for me. That is something that just happens, uh, which I can do without you know paying anybody for that. Um, really, the the cost that I'm concerned about is that initial risk that I may the trade may go into the initial stop and I'll be stopped out. Um, there's slippage, which I measure. So sometimes, you know, I'm getting a fill that is just off. Um, from where I wanted to be filled or where my model wanted to be filled. Um, so that's slippage, which I guess we all have, and you could say that's an additional cost, but um, those are really the only things I look at. Um, yeah, of course, you made commissions, but th those aren't all that all that large. And a bit off of spreads, but other than that, nothing. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I thought it was he was saying, like, if your system is going to take a 3 ATR loss and that's how you built it into your system, then should you also take into consideration that it's going to be three and a quarter ATR loss because of commission and slippage? So should you make it 2.75 ATR, which is actually going to be three ATRs, oh. or three and a quarter ATRs? So, But he said something that uh, inadvertently, I suppose, that I'm dead set against. 
Uh, moving your stop to break even. Oh, mm. try to get that, try to get that out of your head. Uh, yeah. You're not moving anything to break even. That's uh, yeah. take your loss, your full loss, and embrace it and love it, and don't have this emotional response that oh my God, if I have a profit in, uh, I mean I could just start listening to markets, uh, gold, silver, bigger profits, nickel, a bigger profit than recent. Uh, well, I'll give back that profit, but only if it gets to break even. No, look, you had a nice profit. You may have to take the full three ATR loss or whatever your loss is. Go for it. Embrace it. It's cruel, but that's what the system requires you to do. And injecting into your system, blah, 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 then I'll break even at worst is unfortunate. Don't do that. Don't even think that way. No, that I completely, I think that's great that you uh, made that point. All right, Carl, I hope um, you got a little bit of uh, useful uh, feedback on that. The next question is from... I think your name is pronounced Sally, um, I hope. Um, so anyway, it's a long question. I'm going to try and hone in on the initial part. I think what Sally is asking specifically about, you know, he's trying to design some models he's discussing with, with friends. And I think the, the discussion is whether or not you can actually design systems or models that will work both in trending markets and range-bound uh, markets. And then he goes on to say, in my experience, I have yet to find, build, implement a system that works well in both markets. Um, I suppose this is the internal, eternal battle um, in the uh, in technical analysis. I think you 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 mean here. Um, I wanted to ask if, in your opinion, is it even possible? Is it a worthwhile pursuit? My feeling is that it's just uh, a rabbit hole. Uh, with a lot of data mining and backtesting, which looks good on paper, but not tradable. One possible solution I had, which I'm in the process of testing, is to vary the position size of for trades. So when a trade starts to seem like it's going to be successful, the system doubles or triples up. This way, even a hit ratio of about 30% could theoretically generate positive returns so let's get into that i think there's definitely some we will have some 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 views on on that um but we appreciate the question do you want to kick off moritz or jerry who, who wants to so i don't i don't do that i don't think it's a good idea to design a model that works in both trending and non-trending or range-bound markets um, I'd like to keep things as clean, as pure as possible and as simple as possible. So if you want to design a model that works well in trending markets, well, design a model that works well in trending markets. And once you've found the one that works for you, stop right there and try to become comfortable with it. See if you can trade it, if you can follow it, if you can't follow it so that you don't have to give up. Uh, it's not too much heat on your PL and all that type of stuff. If you then really want to, if you're still dissatisfied, with you know that single model then and, and you really want to find other type of trading strategies of which there are many right long short equity mean reversion you name it i mean there's a there's a full spectrum of things that you could be looking at or maybe you want to be looking at well then design another model separate from the trend following model which you know let's say it's a mean reversion or counter trend model that works better in range bound markets or specifically for range bound markets and if you find something that works there and you like it, um, well, then I'm not the person telling anyone that they shouldn't be trading that. You know, we're, we're all, you know, free beings. If they want to trade that, trade it. 
um, and then see it as a separate model and give it a certain weight in your portfolio next to the trend following model and run it as a portfolio of strategies and maybe then go look for a third strategy and a fourth strategy and it becomes a multi-strategy portfolio over time which i you know i like that way of thinking because the strategies between themselves they are not perfectly correlated so you will get some benefit out of you know trading it in that way uh, but i wouldn't i wouldn't really put it all into one system i think that'll be too far too complex that's right i was going to say the same thing and i guess the challenge is the powerful element of the market called trend that makes a lot of money and uh, captures these outlier moves, how are you going to guard against that if you're, when you're playing against it? I think some of these uh, counter-trend or anti-trend ways, they probably do pretty well uh, short periods of time, but then maybe putting a stop loss on it may ruin the profitability. So I'm not sure how you get on the other side of your wonderful trend-following system, and uh, that's going to add value to your to your portfolio. And then, of course, I don't agree about uh, changing your exit based upon, uh, I don't know, he sort of said, uh, looks like, quote unquote, it looks like it's going to be a good trade. So I guess that's not fair. You, you probably have a really good idea and you probably have written a very specific rule, but um, I certainly it's probably going to have something to do with P&L. And so I don't think it's a good idea to change your exit or implement another exit based upon the temporary P&L. It could be a lot of trades that initially look very good um, and then you double the position size and then I just don't think that's going to go anywhere if you know how to do a good backtest. Yeah, no, I was also going to pick up uh, because I agree with everything you've said, but also just to to highlight that uh, particular point uh, for you, Saley, is this thing about whether you should double or triple your um, position size um, if it looks to be um, a, a kind of a winning trade. I don't think you should look at it that way. There's nothing wrong with having multiple entries to build your position. And of course, you would only build it if it's moving in your direction. And that's how you keep the losses small, because if you're going straight into a losing trade, you probably would have uh, you know, a small position size and take a small loss. So there's nothing wrong in building your position size, but I wouldn't be focused on, as Jerry says, kind of the P&L. It would have to be based on some methodology whereby you get, uh, let's call it more signal strength, the more conf signal confidence, whatever you would call it. So, you know, have multiple entries, that's perfectly fine. We, we all do that. Um, but, but don't think about it mentally at least as, oh, if this looks like a winner, I'm going to double or triple because you never know which ones are going to be the winning trades at, when everything is counted for. Um, so just be careful with that. But good question. Yeah, go ahead, Jerry. You wanted to add something? I was just going to say I filed it under systematic discretion. Mm -hmm. You've written a rule for it. It's systema systematized and it's purely discretion. So it's not going to it's going to destroy your sample size. So you can't mess around with those uh, exits based upon uh, the P&L. Yeah, cool. Then we have a short question actually from Edrico. Um, and he has a question of just in terms of when we look to include new markets, um, are there any uh, limit to how correlated they may they can be to the current markets we trade for us to consider them as a new market in the portfolio? Do you think about that when you implement new markets on your side, guys? Um, I do. Um, 
let me give an example. I mean, we we haven't mentioned Bitcoin, so so it's probably about time to do that. But you know, the CME, the CBO actually was first, I think, to launch a Bitcoin futures contract in the December of 2017. And uh, a week later or so, the CME came out with uh, with essentially the same product, just you know, um, five times larger in terms of exposure. Um, yeah, you could say those are both futures markets. Let's add them both to the portfolio. But I mean, let's be frank; they're they're the same thing, right? So you're not going to be trading both, or you, maybe you want to be trading both, but then you're going to be trading half of each. Um, so I definitely have a look at those type of things. If the contract or the markets are too similar, if they're just too dependent, too highly correlated because it's the same product essentially, then one of them has to give. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. That's the way to do it. And then unfortunately, that may change over time. Exactly. And then even if heating oil, crude, and unleaded are 90% correlated, I've seen a handful of times where heating oil doubled and crude sat there so it's a dilemma yeah and of course we we were talking about this before we pressed record today that uh, there are there seems to be always new you know markets coming along that would seemingly be uncorrelated such as cheddar cheese which is coming out as a futures contract uh at the moment so uh yeah there should be plenty of markets to trade that are not uh, extremely highly correlated anyway last question uh for uh, for this uh, episode is from glenn thanks so much glenn for your kind words uh, about the podcast let's set the background here so glenn works in the industry on the brokerage side it would seem and he's been doing work teaching himself um some programming some technical analysis etc etc but w- the aim is to try and get into the cta industry and he's kind of asking our opinion or advice as to what we would do if we were in his position. So we have to rewind the clock 20, 30 years or so. So what would we do today with the knowledge we have, but if we were in if we're in his position, in terms of how we would break into the industry, meaning, I mean, should you try and get a job at a CTA at any cost just to be around? being in that environment, learning, et cetera, et cetera. So let me see if I can sort of highlight, because it's a fairly long email. Ultimately, my question is, if you were someone who was absolutely committed to entering the CTA space, and I acknowledge that in many cases, it's best to just allocate your money to a professional, you know, so he's talking about, you know, should you enter the CTA space managing your own money or should you allocate to, to, to an external manager? Um, how would you go about it? What would uh, the you of today tell the you of the first day you started, so so to speak? That's the question. That's the question. So let me start with you, Moritz, on this one. If you were going to rewind back the clock and um, and break into this industry, how would you do that? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that question is coming up. I'm not sure if I told you, but about two weeks ago, somebody DM'd me on Twitter that I guess the three of us uh, all know with the same question, asking me if I could get on a phone call and provide some advice as to how to get best into the CTA industry. And um, well, as always, the, the answer is it depends on what you're after. Do you want to build a CTA business and uh, manage clients' money? 
um, do you want to work for an existing CTA and work on their research desk? Because, you know, to, for some people that can be really fulfilling to be a part of that group that comes up with new ideas and new research and examines all the trading systems and looks at, you know, many different things. Not everybody needs to be a PM and build their own business. But I can only give my personal uh, my personal advice for, for me as Moritz. I mean, I like trading and being a PM and running those systems and also researching them. So if I wanted to or had to start out again, um, I would, in the current environment, try to get, well, first, first of all, try to try to get a real good feeling and a really good understanding of what a trend-following trading system is. And, you know, the three of us, we talk about it in, a, in an easy kind of way, which is fine. But let me remind everyone again that even though it looks simple on paper and it can even be done in a spreadsheet, there's more behind it. There's, there's really, I think, it requires time to really understand what those systems do and why they do it and how to handle it and how to look at the trade stats. This is nothing that you can just learn within two weeks, just as a, as a, as a point of caution, right? So, but if you are at that point where you've really kind of like you wrapped your head around it and this is how it works and you like that system, try to get some money. If it's your own money, you know, friends and family money and run it. Run it with something like interactive brokers. You know, don't make it a huge enterprise type of thing. At that point, you do not need a website or, you know, put a lot of effort into managing client relations. Just see if you can trade it, if you can be there every day and put the trades in and make the right decisions and follow the system and built it from there. I think this is this is how it would go. And it's kind of like, you know, step by step, if this is successful, try to get some more money, you need to get regulatory approvals, you know, you built a website, you need to, you know, focus on marketing and sales and, and all of that. And if your numbers are good, well, you should have a good chance of running a good business. Yeah, I guess I would say, just based upon my own experience, um, read a lot and understand a lot and get yourself prepared for a good opportunity and uh, try to find some smart people that you can go work for, CTA or hedge fund. Obviously, systematic, and so you can learn and make the coffee or get on the trading desk or whatever, whatever you're, uh, you can get, get your foot in the door. And maybe you have math and coding skills, maybe you don't, you still might have an opportunity in marketing. I mean, it's, it's fantastic following Niels' footsteps. So, uh, but then I would, uh, I guess when I get resumes, uh, I'm a little bewildered that right off the bat, people want to be hired and learn from me, then start their own firm. I mean, like, calm it down, you know? I mean, you may work there for the rest of your life and never have your own firm. But the one thing that nobody wants to hear is, uh, can I just come work for you for a few years? Because I really want to start running my own money. So be a part of a team. I think I would have worked for uh, Richard Dennis for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, why not? I mean, it was great. And uh, it would have been a great opportunity to really maximize uh, getting to know someone who's incredibly smart and genius and uh, or you know it lasts for 20 years and you break off and do your own thing so but I think the most important thing is to get yourself prepared for an opportunity and try to find that opportunity whether it's something really big or something really small and uh, learn from others and that's the way I did it don't be so eager to get out of that trade and, you know, that's a big lesson. I don't know if Larry mentions that in his book as much as some of the other things, but that's certainly getting out of a good trade too quickly 
is always going to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I like your answers. I am... Um... When I think about your question, Glenn, I actually think about the eight people we just had in New York a couple of weeks ago, because I think they exemplify, you know, really well what you should be doing. They're studying, they uh, have built uh, systems, people like Seth and James and and Jim and uh, Alistair, I think, already trading systems uh, and some of our other you know, friends uh, at the event are getting ready to trade and are in that phase. Um, what they're doing by coming to an event like uh, the one we held was they committed to surround themselves and make friends with people who they, um, you know, can learn from, frankly. So, of course, it, I think it, it makes sense for you to to either surround yourself with events or whatever it might be so you get uh, to to meet and, and 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 get to know people and in doing so i think you should make yourself useful and helpful to the people you want to you shouldn't you shouldn't and i see this a lot where people just ask like jerry just said you know can i come and work for you so i can start my own firm that's that's not a great way to put your for you know, that's not a great impression to to leave but if you can do something to help Jerry, you know, whether it be help grow his massive Twitter following or whatever it might be, you know, he'll probably be more open to helping you the day you need. But don't start by asking necessarily for help. Start by helping others. Um, as I think there's something said that about if you help enough people to get what they want, you'll get what you want. And I think that that, that is very true. But, you know, of course, you need to study, you need to build you need to learn and all of those things but i also i just think that the the guys we were surrounded about uh, with uh, in in new york really exemplifies um how to put you know to go about uh, a challenge like that you know educating yourself getting to know people and committing you know they 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 one one guy <laughs> i mean we had uh, we had neil coming all the way from brisbane in australia i mean it took him i don't know 24 hours to fly it cost him a lot of money he spent money at the event, I had to stay for a few extra days, get the jet lag out of the body and back again another 24 hours. I and mean, that's a huge commitment. And I I think, wow, that that's great. And, you know, he'll go somewhere in this business without a doubt because that's that's the ethics that, that he had. So hopefully there's a little bit of takeaway from, from these answers. But, uh, yeah, do whatever it takes. If it's your passion, it won't. Like I think Larry says that, I mean, he never worked a day in, in in his life because what he did as a trend follower was his passion. So it didn't feel like work. All right. That was the last question for this week. Um, we appreciate them. If you want to send us your questions, we love to help if we can. Um, you can send them to info at toptradersonplug.com. Let me quickly run through the um, the performance so far as of Thursday evening. Uh, I think yesterday generally probably was a good day for the industry, so just bear that in mind. But as of Thursday, uh, the Beta 50 was down a little bit, 31 basis points for the month of November, up 5.79 for the year. Sokgen CT index uh, down about half a percent for the month, up 5.78 for the year. Sokgen trend also down about you know half a percent, up 8.3 for the year. 
Sokjian Short-Term Traders Index up 69 basis points for the month, uh, up 2.73 for the year. And the Bridge Alternatives Index, the Flat Fee Index, um, uh, down 35 bips uh, for the month and up 8.08% for the year. Anything else you want to add to uh, this week's conversation? No, I liked it. It was good. Good time. Absolutely. And of course, as always, we appreciate all the support we get from you guys on social media, the retweets and the comments and all of that. It's a, it's a great help. And also, I just think, go back and, and, and listen to uh, the quote from, from Larry Hyde that Jerry was talking about, you know, how you engineer these strategies to fail um, and how that is, you know, mission critical. I think that's just, uh, you know, so important. You know, winning because you always expect to lose is is a really, really good lesson. So anyways, that does it for this episode of the Systematic Investor Series. Of course, as usual, you can find show notes and links and other stuff on the toptradersonplug.com website uh, from Jerry, Moritz and me. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, buy high and sell higher. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.